Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. So we're the surgical education team from Cleveland Clinic, and we're back with another Behind the Knife episode on surgical education. I'm Jeremy Lipman. I'm the designated institutional official and former general surgery program director here. I'm Judith French. I'm the PhD education scientist for the Department of General Surgery. And I'm Amy Hahn, general surgery resident and surgical education research fellow at Cleveland Clinic. Medical students and surgical trainees are likely familiar with the adage, eat when you can, sleep when you can, and don't mess with the pancreas. The physical, mental, and emotional demands of surgical training have been reported by medical students as deterrents of pursuing surgical training and have been reported by surgical residents as factors contributing to resident attrition and burnout. Emerging research in surgical education has called for a greater attention to promote surgeons and surgical trainees' wellness through educational programming and initiatives. The recent Resources in Surgical Education, RISE, article published by the American College of Surgeons Division of Education, Dr. David Rogers describes in the article titled, A Guide for Improving Wellness in Surgical Education, Workplace Conceptual Frameworks and Fields Beyond Medicine to Guide Surgery Leaders and Educators in Developing Evidence-Based Programs to Promote Wellness in Surgical Education Community. We're really excited to welcome Dr. Rogers on this episode to discuss his RISE article and give his advice for surgical educators interested in developing wellness programs at their institutions. David Rogers is a professor in the Department of Surgery with secondary appointments in the Department of Medical Education and Pediatrics and an adjunct appointment in the Colot School of Business. He served as the Senior Associate Dean of Faculty Affairs and Professional Development at the University of Alabama Hearsink School of Medicine and continues to serve as the co-director of the UAB Healthcare Leadership Academy. He was named the UAB Medicine Chief Wellness Officer and appointed to the Pro Assurance Chair of Physician Wellness in 2018. His initial administrative role was as Surgery Clerkship Director, and he remains heavily involved in surgical education and serves as a faculty member of the American College of Surgeons, Surgeons as Educators course. He's a past chair of the ACS's Residence as Teachers and Leaders Program and a 2012 recipient of an ASE Distinguished Educator Award. Dr. Rogers, thank you so much for being with us here. We are just thrilled to have you and really appreciate your taking the time. No, thank you. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So before we dive into our conversation, it's always helpful to define terminology. So depending on the context, wellness can be defined in so many different ways And based on your RISE article, how would you describe wellness as it pertains to surgical education? Yeah, it's a great question because what I have found in the chief wellness officer role is that there's a lot of passion around this concept and that everybody has their own idea. So fairly regularly, I'm contacted by vendors who are promising to solve all my wellness problems. I've joked and said the suggestions I've had locally ranges from you should arrange group marathons to we just need hot donuts every day. Uh, If we could somehow combine combine marathons of donuts, I could make everybody well. But the way that I think about it uh, is really a balance in the workplace between the demands of your work and the uh, resources that are available. So this, it's really, I've sort of moved toward a more 
Eastern philosophical idea of this idea of balance uh, between these two aspects of your work. Now, there are people that are more focused on, you know, to the total life wellness. And I'll acknowledge that, you know, there is a work-life integration. And so demands can come from all places. But that's a concept that I really like for wellness is that it's one of uh, balance. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's well said. And we'll definitely look forward to hearing more about the donut thing later uh, and how we can apply that. Um, in your in your article, you have a, a quote that I really liked where you say that the surgical culture is often celebrated the deprivation of human needs in caring for patients. And it really is something of a badge of honor some people carry around with how much they give of themselves to their patients. And, and while that's honorable, the old school, you know, doing rounds with an IV in your arm because you're too sick otherwise is definitely not where we want to be. What can you tell us and, and the listeners about some strategies for counteracting that longstanding culture in surgical training? Yeah, Jeremy, it's a great question. And I think we have to be careful in this conversation that we are mindful as we try to improve the culture that we don't uh, give up, you know, some of the good aspects of it uh, with maybe uh, strategies that aren't really thoughtfully considered around all the consequences. So in my era of training, you know, it was typical to be on call 24 hours a day for your entire chief year. And, you know, we would be quite proud if we had a sick patient to spend days, literally days and nights for multiple days. And then watching the transition toward the work hour reform with 80 hours has been fascinating because I have not detected any uh, decrease in dedication or commitment on our trainees, but clearly their lives are uh, changed. And so, I think what we have to we'll have to do to change the culture in surgery, I think, is a sort of a reasoned balance between being completely sacrificial in the care, particularly of a critically ill patient who desperately needs what the surgeons bring with the recognition that you can do that in the short term, but that's a horrible long-term strategy. It's been interesting watching some of the people trying to unravel, like, what did work hour reform do? And I don't know that it is really compelling evidence that it substantially changed patient outcomes. And I would wonder if we traded and what we gave away was mistakes that we were making just so because we were so horribly fatigued with now errors that are occurring because we're constantly like turning over. There's so much more transfer. And I think anytime we do that, we lose information. I don't know that I have easy strategies. I do. I made reference in the RISE paper about uh, the work that uh, John Mellinger had done with Jim Coverdell around sleep. And one of the things that they found in their studies is that the surgical attendings had this attitude, well, residents need to work when they're sleep deprived so they can develop strategies because that's what we have to do. And it's such a common thing to hear that our students and our trainees need to learn how to function on low sleep and need to learn how to function, uh, as you pointed out, without their basic needs being met. Um, you know, and it's like saying that you need to learn how to drink and drive. You know, you just you just can't do that, right? I mean, you your body just doesn't function that way. I think it was Jim Coverdell that made the point to me. There's nothing in sleep science that says that's possible. 
you know, sleep is a basic biologic need. And so you can't learn to, you know, sleep in a chronically sleep deprived state. Some of it begins with basic biologic needs and making sure those are met and recognizing that bad things happen, not only for the surgical learners and the teachers, but also for the patients when we chronically deprive people of what they need. Uh, with the recent COVID-19 pandemic, um, there has been a significant more attention paid to the presence of burnout and threats to wellness among medical professionals. But I think even before the pandemic, there has been a lot of emerging work on um, surgical training and uh, high rate of burnout and threats to wellness. So what work has been done previously that suggests that there are definitely areas that surgical leaders and educators need to prioritize when it comes to trainees wellness? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think we we knew that there was a problem. And I think that a pandemic has been a, a great illuminator of lots of challenges in healthcare that we need to address. I think related to burnout, the first presentation that I ever heard on the topic was in probably the early 2000s. I think Lottie Derby uh, was a graduate of the UIC MHPE program. I remember her presenting a piece about uh, medical students in burnout and remember just finding that whole concept curious. I know that Tate Shanafelt, you know, was way out, I think, uh, was kind of the lone voice in the wilderness trying to draw attention to physician burnout even before that. I think what we, if we put together the work that has been done in students and residents, in physicians, in scientists as well, it should cause every educator to sort of take a step back and a pause. Because if you put the literature all together, this is going to be a gross simplification is medical students start medical school looking like, like normal humans on most inventory of wellness or engagement? We sort of start bending them in a very negative position, which really accelerates in the clerkship year. Uh, and then for residents, it's really quite unsettling to watch what the burnout rates do, uh, what the, happens to their engagement. And then you do see some recovery, I think, as people come into practice and begin to probably regain some autonomy in their lives. It goes back to to Jeremy's comment earlier that we sort of celebrate this surgical way of training. And really, we need to take a step back and, and really ask the human question, what are we doing to people? Uh, and is this necessary you know, to create surgeons? Is this idea of subjecting people to deprivation really a, a good and healthy way to train people? So let's go back to your RISE article. And in that, you discuss several conceptual frameworks that can guide surgical educators and leaders in developing effective programs that promote wellness. Uh, so could you elaborate on some of those frameworks and how they can be applied? Yeah, thanks for the question. Let me explain kind of my intention in the RISE thing. So surgeon, surgical educators, particularly those who have been exposed to the writing of George Bordage, understand what conceptual frameworks are. So they're either theories or models. And Dr. Bordage expanded it to include uh, evidence like we would think about it in healthcare. So surgical educators, whether they're MDs or PhDs, are accustomed to trying to do these complicated things around the knowledge and wisdom that's contained within the model. So the point I was trying to make in the RISE article is there are things that you can do, even though the evidence for specific things you know, isn't always great. And even if there's evidence for an intervention in one setting, you have to ask the question, is that really going to be helpful in my setting? 
The conceptual frameworks that we really find helpful when we're thinking about wellness, and again, we're thinking about workplace wellness, are uh, self-determination theory, which says that people are at their best at work when they're competent, uh, which relates to, am I in the right job? You know, Do I have the capacity to do my job? Autonomy, which I think is really important. And there's an interesting thread of conversation about autonomy and residency, particularly what they want and what what the attendees afford them. And then another thing that's called belongingness uh, in the model version that I like. So if I were to tell a resident who's looking for a job, for example, in an academic group or in private practice, I would say you ought to look for features of self-determination theory in that work. Just like I would tell someone applying for a fellowship position, you ought to look. Does that group seem to be a group that really is supportive of each other? Do they like each other or do there seem to be tensions uh, within that group? And I would be very wary of joining into any small group where you had a sense that they weren't uh, supportive, that the leader there wasn't uh, creating this state of belongingness. So the other model that we really like, I've referenced before, it's by an organizational psychologist named Arnold Bacher, and it's called Job Demands Resource. And simply that on one side of your job are demands and on the other side are resources. And he has gone on and been working on the model for 20 years. Support can be work, you know, work support. So to the point of basic biologic needs, as a resident, I remember in my era of training, recognizing that's a generation or so ago, if there was no place to eat at night, you know, your wellness is going to be threatened and you'll be foraging for food. Uh, so resources like that are important. The other kind of resources that relate a little bit to this idea of belongingness are social support. Those are the resource side of his equation. The, the demand side is interesting for surgeons and may be interested to you uh, all and to the listeners is it demands are not necessarily bad. So they are called hindering demands. And those are the things that sort of create a negative emotional state. So it's like all of the bureaucratic things that a lot of us have to do every day in the practice. But there's also thing called challenge demands, which are those things that people are willing to take on because they think that they'll lead to growth or because they relate to an important value. So I haven't seen those models applied to the surgical trainees, but I think it would be an interesting exercise. So thinking about some of those conceptual frameworks that you just discussed, um, what sort of strategies can be implemented to promote a change in institutional culture that values wellness? Because in order to really make these initiatives effective, I think the surgical leaders and the educators really have to obtain buy-in from different parties. So not just the the trainees themselves, but um, the faculty surgeons and other stakeholders, like the leadership within the institution. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a very good question because I think it can be so overwhelming. So I think in order to affect the change we want, we're going to have to have activity at the extra organizational level, at the organizational level, at your team level, and then at an individual level. And so I talk a little bit about in the RISE article, like stress management or resilience training. And those are things that I try to do individually. Uh, the advantage is you can start them right away. Uh, I'm a big uh, fan of the writings by Amit Sood, uh, who was at Mayo Clinic. He now has his own 
a company, but he has some really great accessible practices. So I try to practice gratitude in the morning. I do some cognitive reframing when I go before I go home in the afternoon. And the advantages of those individual practices is you can start change immediately and they will help you navigate through an adverse period. That can't be the organizational solution. I think as I think about surgery teams and surgeon education leaders, one thing that pretty reliably we can do is to provide social support, thinking about like, what does that look like? And so there's some great models for that. Uh, there's a thing called psychological first aid that, and they just do a morning check-in with each other. You know, how are you doing? What do I need to do to help you? That kind of social support. And it sounds kind of trivial or even a little silly, but part of our surgical culture is don't let them ever see your soft underbelly. In other words, we need to work through this culture of saying, hey, I could use some help. We tend to punish that, I think, a little bit in surgery. And this is where I think leaders in surgery can role model by saying, yeah, I could use some help. The idea of social support, there are other models I really like. So for example, the military has one where you're assigned apparently upon entry to the army to a thing called a battle buddy. This is a person who is asked to check in with you for your entire time and just to say, are you okay? And so I think that this would be a great model to do for residents when interns are coming in, say, we're going to assign you someone whose sole job in life is just to say, check in with you and say, are you okay? So you mentioned the battle buddies and and Judith is an army veteran and uh, was nodding along here. You can't see that on our podcast, but she's nodding. Um, So Judith, can you talk a little bit about battle buddies and, and what that is? Sure. Um, When I went into basic training, when I was in the army, I was assigned a battle buddy who was my bunk mate. She slept on the top bunk. I slept on the bottom and we were there for each other. If we needed help putting on our rucksack, you know, she was there for me and I was there for her. Funny enough, in, in terms of her wellness, she was afraid she was going to develop a urinary tract infection and went and bought a bottle of cranberry juice and hid it in her locker and got in trouble because she did that. And the drill sergeant found said bottle of cranberry juice. So wellness only went so far, I guess, in basic training. So thanks for sharing that, because that's the point is surgeons. I had an internist friend laugh at me one time, and she said, when surgeons talk about themselves, they always talk about elite performers. Like they're always like, oh, we're like special forces, or we're like Olympic sprinters. And So she just found it funny. But I said, I think that's true. We see ourselves as elite performers. But this just shows a good example that, you know, I think the military is designed for elite performance. Sounds like they've got some development to work to do with their drill instructor. But we're not too tough or too elite to take this kind of stuff seriously and to learn from what other elite performer groups have done. One of the attitudes that I occasionally encounter in my surgical education work is this attitude within surgery that like learning has to be accompanied by pain. Why is that the case? Like, why can't it be a joyful thing? Why can't we learn from positive experiences? So I think there has been a lot of work done. What I've learned in my organizational work, everyone in healthcare is burned out at it kind of roughly the same rate. So whether it's an administrator, whether it's a resident, whether it's a clinician, whether it's a scientist, the stressors are different. And I think that's 
particularly true in the learning continuum. So we do medical student counseling and we see spikes of interest in counseling that's quite predictable based on their testing schedule. And I think in the transitional periods in surgical training, for example, we know that that creates stress that we should be mindful about. Um, I became acutely aware of it in the 2011, 2012, when I burned out. You know, my experiences, I didn't really have a name for what was happening to me, that you lost your enthusiasm for your work and you lost that sense of a loss of self-efficacy. And it's a it's a very human place to be. We're really grateful that you shared that with us and appreciate your candor. Can you talk a little bit about what were some of the things that helped you to recognize that that you were burnt out and struggling and some of the initiatives that helped you to get back on track? Yeah, so a big uh, source of, you know, joy and satisfaction for me is in surgical education. And as a teacher, what I really like is that point of first contact, that opportunity to work with a resident till they really master you know, a procedure. And what I found was I derived satisfaction for it, but I didn't have the same joy for it. I was just sort of calling it in. There's actually a phrase for that. It's it's called presenteeism, where you're 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 doing your job, but you're not bringing your best self. You know, you're not being creative. You're not. And I find my tolerance for just what sometimes people call stupid things begins to to be challenged a little bit. Just the normal aggravations that we face every day. And so it was that loss of joy, that loss of enthusiasm for that work. And I remember distinctly a resident calling me at 2 a.m. very excited about a probably a congenital anomaly, a case that he or she would never get to see again. And he called me and said, I have this great case. At two o'clock in the morning, there is no case that I would describe as a great case just because I'm so exhausted. And to me, that's what it felt like. It, it travels along with similarities I think with depression, it's a workplace related thing and it's not a stable. So you have good days and bad, but I definitely knew I wasn't in a situation where I could just maintain it. Do you mind talking any more about the the interventions that helped you to come back out of your burnout and to, to get back on track if you feel like you are? Yeah, I can tell you it's it wasn't ultimately, um, you know, I kind of went to my supervisor and said, I you know, I just can't do this much call. It's just, I had turned 50 at that point. And I have, whether it's psychological or physical, I have found with every sort of major odometer type birthday, you feel a little bit like you drop off of a wall in terms of your capacity to tolerate sleep deprivation. And I mean, I remember as a fellow, as I would keep some of my older attendings up all night and they just seemed a little stupid the next day. And then I lived long enough to sort of experience that. And so it lands as you get older, it lands differently. So I went and sort of said, hey, I need some relief. And they said, you know, we we see that. We understand that there's nothing we can do. So ultimately, I quit my job uh, was my strategy and said, I just can't go on anymore. Uh, then there was some more attention to try to accommodate that with a reduced work hour and that sort of thing. But ultimately, it was part of the reason that, you know, I changed positions as I said, I don't, you know, I can keep going on. Now, some things have developed since then. I think there are more groups like my group here where you can have, you know, confidential conversations just to get a sense. Ultimately, my solutions was to change institutions. Uh, And I think, unfortunately, that's the choice that a lot of people uh, these days, whether they're nurses or physicians or whatever, are choosing to make. That's incredible. That's an incredible story. 
would seem that leaders in healthcare should perhaps be looking at this and, and seeing that there may be more benefit to letting someone take a few months sabbatical and come back more productive than losing them altogether. Is that something that you've explored with your program or is that something that's done anywhere as you're aware? You know, it's a uh, so I've always been a little envious of our Canadian colleagues because many of them, uh, it seems to be more accepted in many of those institutions. And maybe it's just for the scientists, not for the physicians, but that every seven years they would take a full on year sabbatical. I was like, wow, that would allow people to work probably for another decade if they have a chance to imagine as a surgeon, if every seven years you could go out and like do a like mini fellowship or kind of get tool back up and that sort of thing. So uh, we certainly have intervened here to get people time off, but it it just becomes a problem of resources about how do you let somebody have, you know, that much time off. I think one thing that stuck out for me uh, from what you had discussed earlier was the importance of social support. And I know that a lot of people, especially during the pandemic, felt very socially isolated. That probably played a factor into the increase in burnout. Um, so now that we're we're able to gather without the restrictions for gathering, um, are there any initiatives or kind of um, programs that you think have been found to be more effective in creating this uh, social network and social support for surgical trainees? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think people are just excited to be back. I think a really effective thing that a surgical education leader can do is think about these social gatherings, recognizing that people have you know, different preferences and don't make them mandatory, but try to create different options where people connect really for just the purpose of being uh, human together. I think this is also a really important uh, reason for the meetings that occur, but it's just that chance together with colleagues that aren't necessarily at your place and so can provide sort of a safe sounding board. So I think as we think about social gathering, we need to be sensitive to the fact that if you're an introvert, as I am, you don't need like social stuff all the time. I always joke and say that when an extrovert sees that an, an introvert like me is getting a little sad, they're always trying to cure us with extrovert activities. In other words, they're like, oh, you seem a little sad. Do you want to get together and talk about it? And I'm like, no, being together and talking about it is what made me sad to begin with. So I think what we need to do is to create, you know, different options for people and and some people, you know, want to gather around activities. So whether it's like a, a running activity or, or gaming or anything that people might gather to do, I think particularly for resident groups, uh, for the leadership, for the senior residents and leaders to say, hey, we're going to just come up with these things that are really when we're just kind of being together, you know, outside of work. Um, and then I think the departments and the educational leaders to be sensitive to people in the transitions. Like I really think interns have to be in a very vulnerable period because they're coming. Many times they've moved. Um, if they if they're bringing a small social set, they're scrambling to try to follow in childcare. Uh, they're trying to get acclimated to a new culture. Uh, that we as educational leaders we should be really attentive to new people that are coming in and make sure one of the departments I was in had a really good program where you were assigned a host faculty member your first year who, you know, was the person you called and said, hey, how do, tell me about dentist in this town. Tell me about, you know, how do I get a doctor? Tell me what's the best place to get a car wash? Just all the simple stuff that 
you know, we all master it, but I think some real attention to social support in those transitions is really important. And then I think just a variety of activities, whether they're formal and then just making sure that people, you know, are felt welcome, but not so-called, you know, felt like this is a mandatory fund um, where I'm expected that actually can be, I think, wellness impairing. Yeah, absolutely. The older I get, the more introverted I become and the less I find it fun to be told I have to go to something to have fun. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, it's and they're well-meaning and I love them, but it's just extroverts. You know, they can't help themselves. So you just, you know, try to explain to them. And then I've seen a couple of deans in my career that were really good at kind of coming into a social thing, being there long enough to be seen and then seeming to vanish. So I think there's an art to even if you're expected, you can, you know, certainly regulate it uh, so you're not there for, for a long time. So we've talked about wellness and leadership and a little bit on how they intersect, but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about, so if I increase my leadership skills, if I work to become a better leader, how can that impact my wellness? Well, I think it's, you know, there's some good literature in the mentoring um, literature that shows that mentors derive a, a great benefit from the act of being mentoring. I think, first of all, for the great majority of people, particularly people in healthcare, we derive great satisfaction, uh, enjoyment, joy in helping people. And that's the luxury for me of, you know, having lived into my 60s as I derive much more benefit from helping younger people advance themselves. Uh, and so that's a luxury. And I realize that's a privilege. You know, we've talked about culture change, and that has to be from leadership, and it's not easy. I mean, leaders are constantly having to make choices because people will say, well, we need to change the culture, and that begs the question, from what to what? What I will regard as success here, and I think you could do it in any department of surgery or even in the in the GME group, is when we talk about people concerns, uh, like we talk about financial concerns with equal footing when we're thinking about programs, to me, we will have probably gotten to the culture change that I think is optimal. You know, my feeling is that the residents are leaders. And so we need to begin challenging the, the interns and the junior residents. A real challenge you have with interns and junior residents is convincing them they are leaders. And I used to challenge them and say, if I were to go to your organization and meet with the medical students, you have a reputation, right? So if you believe that leadership is influence, you're already leading because you're already influencing people's, even big things like their perception of surgery generally. The model that I really like for uh, leadership basically advances well-being among the subordinates or followers is called Coaching Leadership out of Daniel Goldman's uh, book, Primal Leadership, other uh, related thing called Empowering Leadership. But it's basically leaders who really care about the followers and who are trying to help them advance themselves. Listen, we are so grateful for all the time you spend with us in this phenomenal discussion. We do our educational sign-out at the end, so we'll ask you to Give a few take-home points for our listeners, things you'd like them to, to keep and hopefully apply as they move forward in their careers. Yeah, thanks. I think, you know, I would probably do that at levels as well. So the first thing to anyone who's listening to this is if you've kind of lost your enjoyment, if you've lost your zeal, you know, for what caused you to be a surgical teacher, 
even a trainee, you know, if you find like you're in distress, please, you know, get help. If you have access to a psychologist, great uh, employee assistance, someone to have a confidential conversation. But, you know, I, I think about people like that a lot because the pandemic has uh, distressed all of us. And so to anyone who's feeling that uh, it's not your fault, you won't be able to fix it. Uh, you'll need some help, but it's important. Uh, and then this idea of self-efficacy where in some of this is probably a generational thing. Some of it is a gender thing. There may be professional influences. Like, I think I could just, I can just hammer through this, right? I can just, I'll just buckle down. I'll be able to do this. And, you know, the lesson that I learned from that I would share to everyone is that that is not possible. There is nothing in the burnout literature that says you can, you know, you can tough it out. And so what I would have wished is that the program like the one that I help lead here had been available to me for someone just to go have a conversation and say, this is what I'm experiencing. I think the second point that I would make is this is going to be difficult to do. And so we need everybody joining in all levels of uh, learners to change the culture of surgery. And we need to be thoughtful so that we don't give up the things that are really exciting. Um, you know, surgeons get the privilege of being in the state of flow, which is this completely almost addictive state of work where the work is so compelling. We lose track of, are we sleeping? Are we eating? Because it's so compelling. And that's a great privilege. We don't want to give that up uh, in order, but I think we can get to a better balance uh, where we aren't distressing people, but it's going to take everybody at all levels. And I think to the residents, the challenge would be to realize that you're having an influence as well. The leader that's most important is your immediate leader, your immediate supervisor, not the dean, not the president of the university, not these outside things. It, you know, it's your immediate leader. And I remember distinctly as a junior resident, if we were coming up on the trauma rotation or a difficult rotation, if you had a great chief and a great team, this was something that created experiences, you know, that have enriched me for a lifetime. And so the work we do is challenging. I think for those of us in my generation is the message would be it's challenging enough and we don't have to make it more challenging. You know, interacting with our learners should be joyful. Uh, it's going to be difficult. It doesn't mean we shouldn't give corrective feedback and do the hard things that we're compelled to do. Uh, some thoughtfulness about sort of getting to a right balance on that. At least it's the future that I'm uh, working to try to make happen. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for such a, a candid and thoughtful discussion. Uh, we will post, uh, in addition, all the references that you mentioned so the listeners have access. And if you would just send us that donut recipe, we'll get that on there too. Absolutely. Dominate, Dominate education. education. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.